Okay, so we pulled David right out of bed to record this episode, and I want to make sure that we properly rouse him. So, David, I'm going to go through some of the biggest stories you've covered in recent weeks, and I want you to give me a one-word description of each. Ready? Oh, my goodness. Okay. Carlos Curbelo's carbon tax. Eh. Is that, wait, is that a word? Ah. Yeah. <laughs> Electric buses. Awesome. Global coal consumption. Not declining as fast as... That's wait, many words. Wait, one word. <laughs> way more than one word. Yeah, I don't have one word on that one. Uh, mixed. Ambiguous. Spanking your kids. Oh, bad. <laughs> I like how you have an article about spanking wedged between Electrify Everything and Scott Pruitt. <laughs> I like to cover the waterfront. Coming up, Renaissance man David Roberts joins us to talk about a wide range of energy stories, and maybe we'll even include some advice on how to discipline your kids. First, though, a little advice on your choice of solar panels. Choose Mission Solar Energy. Mission Solar is an American solar manufacturer with a 200-megawatt facility in Austin, Texas. Solar panels made in Texas? What's more American than that? These solar panels exceed international performance standards by three times, and they have the highest performance ratings of any North American manufacturer. Find out more about Mission's high-quality, high-efficiency solar panels at missionsolar.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. We've got a grab bag this week. Vox writer David Roberts joins the gang. He's a cornerstone of the energy media sphere. David covers every possible energy subject and brings a very strong point of view to his writing. So we're going to talk about carbon taxes, the raging debate over nukes, the most exciting and depressing trends in the energy transition, and maybe we'll get to some of your questions on Twitter, too. And the gang's all here. Co-host Catherine Hamilton's in Washington, D.C. She's chair of 38 North Solutions. Hey, Catherine. Hey, guess what? I'm going to the Nats Stadium tonight, and it's not to see a Nats game. What are you doing there? The Eagles and James Taylor are playing, so it's going to be oh, awesome. Nice. <laughs> yeah, man. That's great. Co-host Jigger Shaw is the president of Generate Capital. Hey, Jigger, how are you? Good. I've got to go out and get some big lighters for Kathy. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> David Roberts is out in Seattle. Uh, I realize I never gave you a formal hello. Hello. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. I think the first order of business is this carbon tax proposed by Florida Republican Congressman Carlos Curbelo. So how much stock should we actually put into this thing? If you want a Democrat-Republican breakdown of the political chess pieces behind this proposal, listen to the latest episode of uh, our Political Climate Podcast. We also cover the eco-right view of climate politics on the interchange. But I can't pass over this one because David has spilled a lot of ink over carbon taxation. We've talked about it a bunch. And this seems to move the needle in some way, at least conversationally. So I'm interested in the politics of this nearly a decade after the cap-and-trade bill died, but I'm also interested in the design. How would a good carbon tax work? So I want to go to you first, Catherine. What is this Curbelo carbon tax? So this is $24 for metric ton of CO2. Um, in the process of charging for carbon, they would end a gas tax and pause greenhouse gas regs. The funding that would be taken in from having a carbon tax, and the carbon tax extends to a lot of different industries. It also tries to accommodate for leakage and global issues around carbon. Um, but in the process of it, it funds a bunch of different things. Some of it goes to the Highway Trust Fund. Some of it goes 
to the weatherization program. Some of it goes to restoration from damage done by carbon. It, it seems like it's going to some good things. It is supported by Curbelo and Fitzpatrick from Pennsylvania. Curbelo's from Florida, from the Keys, really seeing climate change there in real time. Um, and they're pushing this forward, I think, mostly as a messaging bill. It's certainly, we can talk about what it'll do. It certainly can't go anywhere because of the midterms. Ah, the old messaging bill. David, on a scale of skeptical to cynical, where do you fall when it comes to this bill? <laughs> well, uh, it sort of depends on what lens you're you're uh, looking at it through. I mean, I think Catherine's obviously right. It's not it's not going anywhere, it's, and I don't think it's meant to. I don't think anybody uh, expects it to. So, in terms of its <clears throat> chances of passage, I mean, it's Catherine. It's nice of you to say it can't pass because of the midterms. Another way of saying that is it can't pass because of the Republican Party. But, you know, and politically, I just sort of take it as a measure, kind of the same way I take the climate, uh, the House Climate Caucus, whatever the heck they're calling themselves. Climate Solutions Caucus. Thank you. I just sort of take that as like a barometer of how many um, kind of purple districts there are right. I mean, the the purple districts are sort of famously declining as you know everything gets sorted into heavy red and heavy blue. But there are still some purple districts left, and still some Republicans left, although they are rare, who need to kind of be seen appealing to the center, or at least be seen sort of as moderate. And this is and and there's sort of no easier way to signal that than to sign on to a caucus where you're just sort of allowed to look virtuous and never forced to take, you know, never forced to vote in any sort of risky way or do anything particularly risky. So, uh, you know, I'm just sort of a realist about the size of this caucus. What I think is interesting about the bill is just, uh, you know, at some point, I think, we all agree, maybe, like at some point, either we're all going to die in nuclear fire or the Republican Party is going to come back from its current uh, state. <laughs> and, and and part of that will be make, making peace with climate policy. And so this is sort of the very, very, very early stages of jockeying about what that's going to look like. So to me, the most interesting thing about the bill, sorry, that was a very long and winding intro, the most interesting thing about the bill is the 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 um, dispute within uh, the conservative side over what to do with the revenue, basically, or, or, or uh, whether to make it revenue neutral or not. Sort of, you know, the Schultz uh, the Schultz proposal, which came out last year, and just That's was George Schultz. George Schultz, yeah, uh, old retired Republican, sort of the other, quote, Republican carbon tax proposal, uh, was revenue neutral. As you know, all the money automatically returns through dividends. Um, And Curbelo's, interestingly, uh, uh, spends some of the revenue, you know, uses it for government uh, uh, revenue and spends it on, you know, things governments need to spend money on. And that to me is a really interesting argument that sort of cross cuts the Republican coalition and also kind of cross cuts the democratic coalition. Cause a lot of Democrats are also for reasons that frustrate me to no end also seem to be signed on to revenue neutrality. So that like conceptually, intellectually, that's sort of the, the interesting 
fight that's going on as I see it. Yeah, a couple of other things that the that the revenues would pay for would be for worker retraining, which I think is great for industries that are affected by this and the DOE programs, research programs, including RPE. So yeah, I, I kind of like the way this is set up, but I think you're totally right. And of course, right before he introduced this bill, there was a vote to that climate like car, that a carbon tax would be detrimental to the economy, which in 2016 they had a vote where it's a hundred percent of Republicans voted that carbon a carbon tax would be detrimental, but this year only 98 percent. So, oh my gosh, go. oh my gosh, at this at this rate in only 100 years we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna nail this thing. Yeah, I mean I'm very cynical about the larger. I mean, in no way. Is this, are we anywhere close, right? In no way is this have any chance of passage. In no way is this about the Republican Party turning. And Scalise's sort of resolution, I think, should have put that notion to rest if there was any doubt in anyone's mind. This is all about the far, the far future. So I'm curious about whether just having the conversation is interesting because like from my perspective, we're making extraordinary strides. I mean, since 2014, roughly 75% of all new capacity additions to the grid have been um, uh, low carbon. Um, and and when you think about just how fast we're moving in the technology sphere around, you know, just costs, right? In Nevada, we recently had a RFP that showed that solar came in at $27 a megawatt hour. And so it feels to me like things are moving really fast. And part of what I thought when Carbello put this out was that, that it looks like we're going to turn Florida. I mean, we just turned Florida in a really big way in the last three years on solar regulation, such that it's really taking off for solar installations. But it feels like now the state legislature can, you know, put climate change back into a lot of the departments in the state of Florida and actually you know, start leading in that area. Yeah. You know, what was also interesting to me was this thread that Greg Dotson had on Twitter. He was the um, vice president of um, of CAP. And then he also had worked with, on the Waxman-Markey bill pretty intensely back in the day. And he noted that some of the language was interesting in the sense of the Congress about the carbon tax, where the word standalone was in front of carbon tax. And he saw this as potentially a tiny bit of movement on the part of a company like Exxon, in whose district uh, Kenny Marchant from Texas uh, represents, and that and he kept talk, Kenny Marchant kept talking about standalone carbon tax. So, you know, really the Carbello bill is not just a standalone carbon tax; it's a carbon tax and it's a repeal of the gas tax. I mean, you can you can message it all different ways, but one big piece is yes, I think Florida is moving in part because they're being affected by hurricanes on a daily basis almost. But the other thing is, if the oil majors start changing and they are globally starting to invest in different technologies, that can also move the needle. Right. So this could fly for a Florida congressman in a state where they actually are seeing real impacts of sea level rise, but it won't fly with, you know, Midwestern Republicans who may not get the same kind of benefit from the revenue raised by a carbon tax. I had a conversation with um, Alex Bosmoski of Republican after the bill was introduced. And he said, you know, I think he he characterized it similarly to everyone else. It's a messaging bill. It's a way to get people talking about it. And it's a way for them, at least, to try to tell Republicans, hey, you can actually, um, with a low carbon tax 
generate a lot of revenue that you could potentially work with in your own state. So there's a bit of a, a pork element to this that I guess could be an attractive bargaining chip for Republicans. I don't know. It just seemed to be something on the table. You know, it's interesting. Uh, there's two. Uh, there's two sort of counter uh, tendencies on the right about this. Uh, I don't even know if it's on the right in politics generally. On the one hand, ideologically, if you're a conservative, what you ought to be supporting, or at least this is sort of what they've talked themselves into, what you ought to be supporting is a carbon tax, if and only if. It, re- it reduces other taxes, right? It doesn't raise the net tax burden, doesn't slow the GDP growth, et cetera. So ideologically, you're committed to returning all the revenue as tax cuts. But politically, <clears throat> the way to sweeten the pot for a tax for a giant new tax is to give out the revenue as as pork, as you say, Stephen. Like that's, in, in you know, we saw this in in Waxman Markey when when uh, you know Henry Waxman was struggling to get it through the House. You use the revenue to to buy support. I mean, it's ugly, but that's kind of how it works. So so this to me is a tension around carbon tax design that Republicans, you know, I, I just don't think they're far enough down this road to have come really to have to grapple with this problem yet, but eventually they're going to have to grapple with it, which is politically to, to sell a carbon tax, you need that revenue, but ideologically you're supposed to be committed to, you know, waving it all away. Let's shift over to progressive politics in the absence of any coherent climate policy. Progressives have been pushing further and further toward 100% renewable energy. It's the de facto platform for Democratic candidates now um, in a lot of races. And I wonder, David, what you think about the the politics of this and the academic debate raging around whether the you know the grid can handle 100% renewables, whether it's economically optimal. You know, you've you've written a decent amount about this, and I think because it's been so entrenched in democratic politics now, it's worth reconsidering, particularly in the absence of any carbon pricing policy. I my personal opinion is the academic debate over whether 100% renewables is possible is is irrelevant to the politics of uh, to, is irrelevant to the question of whether this is good politics because the fact is nothing we do in 2018 is go- no no one in 2040 is going to be restrained by anything we did in 2019 right there's just the, the the notion that we're committing ourselves inexorably to something by passing a bill like that and that we might get stuck and then you know panic and 2030 or 2040 or it's just ridiculous like it's all anybody who's talking about 2040 or 2050 or 100% anything is just it's more affective than 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 a concrete prediction or, or, or commitment do you know what i mean like any anything where you're, that, where you're talking about that's so far distant from the present we just have no idea what might happen between now and then and so we have no idea how practical or how possible it's going to turn out to be and i just don't think that matters like it's mostly aspirational it's mostly about the, the how it feels and what it says about america and what it says about the party like it's a it's you know it's a it's a piece of politics but you know I, people should should make peace with that as for you know whether it's good politics, I don't know. I and I'd be, you know be interested to hear what you guys think about this. But I I think climate politics. I was just I'm actually 
in the midst of pondering a piece on this, climate politics and the Democratic Party are in a weird are in a weird place right now. There's a lot of sort of um, I don't want to use the word extreme. There's a lot of sort of bold bold bits and pieces floating around. So 100% renewables or keep it in the ground or, you know, a giant carbon tax, all those things are very bold, but there's no, what I don't know is what is the current sort of moderate centrist standard, you know what I mean? Position on climate that you're sort of like generic off the shelf Democrat can resort can fall back to like what it used to be, as we all know, it used to be cap and trade, but now it's, it's no one has any idea. Well, look, I mean, I always thought cap and trade was stupid. And my sense is part of this is to move away from the federal government, right? I mean, this is not a place where the federal government is useful. Like it just isn't useful. And I think folks who believe that the United States should match Germany should recognize that the EU has not matched Germany, right? The, the United States is just as diverse as the EU countries are, and the EU countries are all over the map, literally and figuratively. And so, I, you know, I just, I, I find the entire conversation so enraging because it's not like the Democrats could pass anything when they had 60 votes in the Senate. So, like, let's just, like, move past this, right? I, I think- Well, no one, no one passes anything anymore, Jigger. That's well, not that's, what politics are about anymore. This is, this is America. We just argue about things. But, but to answer your question on the Democrat side, I think that one of the things that also bothers me to no end is that this 100% renewable energy thing only got invented by Governor O'Malley in the 2016 election. It didn't exist before that. Well, didn't Al Gore? Al Gore talked about it in like Al Gore talked about it and everyone promptly forgot about it during the cap and trade debate like soon after. But this modern iteration of actually passing laws in California or New York or other places really came out of the 2016 presidential election. And so, first of all, it hasn't happened that long. So let's like not kill things a year after they were really, you know, brought forward. But second of all, I think that the states are doing really great stuff. So, for instance, in Massachusetts, Vermont, California, other places, we've now banned food waste from the landfill, which is an important step in preventing, un, you know, like sort of captured methane from being released into the atmosphere um, out of landfills. I think there's a lot of work being done with dairies, a lot of work being done in electric vehicles. I just think that there's an enormous amount of work being done there, which supports the technology entrepreneurs who are trying to prove that their solutions are actually cost effective and ready to be scaled up. So, Jigger, I disagree with you on a couple things, which is one is I do think the federal government has a role to play. I think that what we were doing uh, previous to the Trump administration with the Clean Power Plan, with CAFE standards, with codes and standards, all of those things are really important for creating certainty in the markets for manufacturers. And manufacturers come to the table and they want that certainty and it moves innovation forward. So I do think that there is a really strong role for the federal government. I think that you can have a strong message about let's go full full bore on 100% renewables without that having to be what your position is when you're running for office in Western Pennsylvania. So for example, Connor Lamb, who won the special election in outside of Pittsburgh and Pennsylvania, voted in favor of this anti-carbon tax. He has to. He has two coal plants in his district. So maybe what he's thinking about now is, all right, 
how do I move forward with innovation, with job retraining, and take smaller steps? And I think you can do that depending on where you are, what your constituents look like. There was a really good podcast um, on the Columbia Ener Energy Exchange with Senator Michael Bennett from Colorado. And the way he talks about this is really cogent and effective on how you can have a big position and be in favor of doing something big on climate change from a big perspective. And then yet when you go to the ground in your grassroots level in your district or state, you have to kind of work with what they have. I do think, Catherine, is sort of uh, identifying an interesting tension, which is on the one side, you still have much more on the D side than on the R side. Uh, Ds in, in these sort of purple districts, in these sort of fossil heavy districts that are not in a position to be bold. And then on the other hand, you have this enormous pressure from the left uh, on on the Democratic Party in general, you know uh, the, the the momentum and the the sort of uh, the, the the life is all on the left, you know, pushing Democrats towards Medicare for all and uh, free college, uh, all this kind of stuff. And so, it's fine for Michael Bennett to to sort of you know, come up with this sort of moderate bricolage, comforting, you know, not too radical message, which to me just sounds boring. <laughs> the kind of thing that Michael Bennett will start talking about and everybody's eyes will glaze over and they'll forget what he said, but they'll assume he said something moderate because he had the right tone of voice. You know, that's necessary. But on the other hand, you have this enormous pressure from the left to go big and to go bold and to stop this incrementalism, you know, and stop the Hillary Clinton model of incrementalism. And I don't know how those, like, to me, what's interesting is how those two tendencies are going to be resolved. I don't know what that looks like exactly. I think it's voters. I honestly think it's from the real grassroots. I think that's what's happening with healthcare. And I think that'll happen with climate change too. But, but what is the big, bold thing then? I mean, assuming the pressure works and the Democratic Party is pushed to some big, bold thing, on climate. What is that exactly? Is it going to be national 100% renewables? Like what is the Democratic Party's stance on this going to look like in 2020? I can't even really think of it. I mean, I don't know when I think, I think it about will it. It'll be 100%. Yeah? I, no, I, I doubt I, it. I mean, it's most so of easy us... to rally around. It's such an e there's nothing nothing else compares. Nothing else compares. Yeah, but it's most fantastic of us, politics. Including... I don't think it's great policy at all, but uh, I think it's the best political slogan that you could Wait, ask for. Why not? Why don't you think it's good policy? Most of us are against national renewable portfolio standards. I mean, like, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I also think that, like, look, I'm going to have that same boring approach. I take a nuanced approach. I think there's all sorts of technologies that we're leaving out of the equation when you when you demand 100% renewable energy. You're talking about picking a couple of technologies. You're also not that's not a good climate policy. You're talking about a one subsector of the economy um, and decarbonization is very complicated. So I think it sounds well, really good, but it's not great policy. Um, but you can't you can't say just because it doesn't solve the whole problem it's not a good policy. No climate policy solves the whole problem, so that it's all part of a package. It, it, when you're when you're evaluating it in terms of politics, it, you know it's all about does it capture something and inspire something and move people in some way or reframe the way we think about this in some way. I really don't think that you know it's going to in any way materially affect how or whether we 
invest in CCS in 2030 or, or whatever. Do you know what I mean? It's all, it, it's all about the symbolism. And I just think it's, uh, it's very powerful symbolism. No, I look, I think you have a lot of desire in the part of Republicans and frankly, Democrats as well to be supportive of technologies through tax credits and other types of things. I think the taxing of bad stuff you know, sin taxes like carbon taxes are something that even Democrats are sort of not really loving. Um, the only reason some of this policy might happen is not because of carbon. As you said earlier, the reason why some of this policy might happen is because it's tied to universal basic income or some reform of all of the random welfare programs that Paul Ryan has gutted anyway. And so maybe you make it into, you know, cash payments to individuals, right? There's There's an entire like sort of social justice, you know, sort of welfare angle here, which may be paid for by carbon taxes. Oh, I think uh, I think Republicans are more likely to come to it through the promise of tax reform. That's what they're all saying. They're all saying it's a big it's a we can accept it as a big part of tax reform and only as a big part of tax. That's why that's why I think, Stephen, they're saying standalone over and over again. I think what they're really getting at is we'll do this as part of a big deal on taxes and as long as all the other parts of that deal are horribly regressive. That's the deal they're setting up. Let's talk about some other deal making, and that is how to save nuclear power plants, another subject that you've been writing about more and more that a lot of people are grappling with. What do we do with retiring nuclear power plants in this country and other countries? What do you do to progress when those power plants start closing en masse, which we are already seeing? And I wonder how your thinking has evolved on this, David. What's helped me is, I think, just bracketing the question of new nuclear plants or, or bracketing the question of whether building more nuclear is going to be part of a climate solution. That's a complicated question about which people have extremely, <laughs> extremely passionate uh, uh, views and is a, a sinkhole of an argument and is separable, I think, from the question of what to do with these plants we already have running. And to me, uh, the logic is is fairly simple. They are, you, you know, you can argue about the carbon life cycle of nuclear. There's a lot of carbon embedded in the construction and in, the, and in uh, you know, taking these plants apart at the end of their lives. But that's already baked in to these plants that are already built. So whatever you think about that, they are currently built and they are currently producing zero carbon power. And and if we're think that climate is an existential threat and we need every little bit of carbon free power we can possibly get as soon as we can get it and as long as we can have it, then you know, then you pay some money to keep these plants open as long as you can. To me that to me the logic is pretty obvious. And to me, you stop paying to keep those plants. I mean, this is a sort of idealized, uh, you know, it's never going to work this way in actual politics, but the idealized approach would be pay to keep these things open until it's cheaper to build new renewables than it is to operate those existing or, or to build new renewables and, 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 and batteries and efficiency or some package of clean energy is cheaper than the operating costs of those new nuclear plants, which is going to be, you know, a while because they're pretty cheap once they're up and running, then you shut the nuclear plants down. That's, I, I, it's, I, that seems obvious to me. And it's, I don't know why it's controversial. There's another element to this 
that is quite interesting to me, and that is the using nuclear pl- plants as a political bargaining chip for the distributed energy industry. And right, right. Now, I think a lot of advocates, um, um, you know, companies in the distributed energy space are realizing that they can get a lot out of policy if they come to some sort of agreement to keep these plants open. And it seems yeah, like I a win-win. That's right. And also, yeah, it also, um, you know, there's a lot of, this is less sort of t- less tangible, but I think there's a lot of politicians around now who are sort of wavering on climate change, wavering on climate policy and kind of want some way in, but they need, uh, they need a fig leaf, right? They need a way to get in that where they won't be tagged as just like all those other lefties and environmentalists, right? They need their sort of responsible way in. And so nuclear can sort of be that fig leaf, like, like okay, I'll make you a deal on clean energy as long as we can also, like responsible adults, talk about nuclear power. So in a way, it's um, whether or not you think these plants are actually going to be able to stay open for very long or whether or not you even think that makes a huge difference in terms of in terms of carbon it is symbolically a, 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 a like you say a way for a lot of politicians to kind of sign on to some of this stuff um, in, a, in a way that looks moderate and balanced right so it's like symbolically it's important yeah. So, and Mur- Murphy did that. I mean, Governor Murphy did that yeah, in New right. Jersey when they separated out the ZEC nuclear credits from the clean energy program so that people could take separate votes and they wouldn't have to be conflated and be part of a big deal, but be two separate issues that he could get both of those done. But they only got done because of the other, right? I mean, the, only, the one only got done because of the other. I thought they were, I mean, it, it, I thought the whole point was neither of them could have passed in isolation. No, we actually had the votes for the renewables without the nuclear. I mean, there was actually a huge give on the, on the really? renewable side. Yeah, because we negotiated that deal with Murphy before he got elected governor. Um, so that deal had already been cut. It, it was New York and Illinois where we really needed more votes than we had. Um, so those nuclear plants were essential. I still think that in Ohio and Michigan, we have a chance to save those plants. But I think, I, I guess part of what I would say is I feel like we're being a little too cynical, which is that, I mean, I genuinely do believe nuclear is part of the future, right? I don't know that it's, you know, like sort of um, the current designs, the three plus designs. I think, you know, a lot of the new designs that Ernie Moniz gave a lot of money to before he left office um, are probably going to be the future. But I also think there's a huge opportunity with the thousands of dams that we have in this country that are not powered. I mean, only 3% of dams in this country are powered. And when you look at all of the technologies that have come out, whether it's Natel Energy or others, who have figured out how to like help those smaller 200 kilowatt, 500 kilowatt, one megawatt dams get powered, that's a lot of clean energy that we can get, right? Same thing's true with biomass, where, you know, in... Um, I don't like biomass from wood just because I think that that's not good for the climate. But there's certainly a lot of anaerobic digesters that could, um, you know, burn the biogas for electricity that works in Germany. I think it's like 7% of the energy uh, production in Germany. I was I was pretty convinced by that report that I, I, I wrote it up, the report that came out recently, looking at a future for nuclear power. And, and it sort of, you know, made the point that even if these advanced designs eventually come to fruition it seems like the timeline is such that it's they're, they're going to be kind of too late to 
<laughs> too late to make much of a contribution to decarbonization. But I don't know. I hope I hope they do. I mean, it would be better than not having them. Catherine, what do you think about using demand response and efficiency and conventional renewables to fill in the gap for nuclear? I think the conventional wisdom is that we're just going to be running in place. You seem to be a believer that we can continue progress and fill in the gap for many of these plants. Thoughts on that? Yeah. So, I mean, you all did this big report. Green Tech Media did this distributed energy poise for explosive grid uh, set to double by 2023, uh, the GTM research report. And I think what we haven't really completely embedded in all of our analyses is flexible resources. And I don't mean any of them in isolation. So it's some kind of a combination of storage and demand response and efficiency and smart inverters and all and and distributed generation behind the meter, like solar. So, you know, having all of these work in concert and having consumers be much more part of the equation and much more of a resource, I think that balanced with what we're doing on the other side of the grid, on the transmission side of the grid, can care that to, in my mind, is the vision of the future. And then these other plants, you know, I, I don't know how many times we're going to pay for them and how many times they're worth paying for. Certainly, you don't want people to be in the dark, but none of the um, analyses so far show that any of the plant closures that are set right now are going to leave anybody in the dark. I'm of two minds on this. I think that we have a very valuable and effective technology set to fill in the gap for closing baseload power plants. But you know, there's still a lot of experimental work with mixed results. Jeff St. John actually last week wrote this fantastic squared piece on um, the smart inverter tests out in California and how utilities were actually seeing problematic results because of um, communications problems. Uh, the uptime for inverters wasn't what they thought it would be, and that they actually have a lot to work through in terms of data sharing and um, you know, hitting the performance standards that they need to hit. So smart inverters are, um, they have been in use for a long time. They are certainly getting better. They will be an enormous part of the solution, but we're still at this experimental level where we're getting a lot of performance data to make the grid act like we we talk about it on this podcast. Um, so I don't know, I'm, I'm both uh, a little bit cynical on the time frame, but very hopeful that it can and will work out. No, but you can't and you can't on the one hand sabotage all these efforts like the utilities have done and then on the <laughs> other hand say that oh, they're not as far along as they could be. What do you mean I sabotage? Mean, like like these first of all smart inverter technology was invented in the 80s, right? Yes. The utilities banned smart inverters using IEEE 1547 saying that when the grid went down, the, the inverter had to shut down. It could not work in islanding mode or any other modes that are available, right? It wasn't really until the resurgence of the Petra Solar contract with PSE and G that smart inverters were even allowed again. And just right? to remind people, the Petra Solar deal was in New Jersey where they were installing individual solar plant panels uh, on light posts all around the state. Uh, and right, but when you them for but when loads. you look at how end phase inverters are used in Hawaii, they're absolutely saving the grid every single day, right? I mean, end phase inverters have been they've changed the software in their inverters to allow the utility companies to use them as a grid resource, and they're working every day, you know, under NREL's guidance. And so, I just think that. 
The, the technology is not the problem. There is some operational challenges, but that's just because we don't have enough cycles of use. Even during this latest um, heat wave in LA, Nest is still only testing like 10,000 thermostats for their stupid program with Southern California Edison. Why are they not allowed to take every single thermostat in the entire region and bid it into the capacity markets? Well, I'll tell you, because the California ISO hasn't done their job and there's no transparent way to compensate Nest. Well, they're working on that. I think I think that is yeah, absolutely coming. So I think there's the operational issue and there's the payment issue. And I think those are both coming soon. I hear you, but I'm just saying, as someone who has invested $100 million on the promise that Wellinghoff was told at, that California ISO would lead in this area and they would have their rules done in 2017, they're still not done. Well, this gets to the heart of why I tend to roll my eyes at the 100% renewable energy political sloganeering. It's because I'm so embedded in the technical details that uh, that I, I get annoyed when they get lost in the political debate. But hey, you know, po- politics isn't about nuance, right? So, <laughs> but I think that's that's what I'm thinking about when someone sh- holds up a sign and says, "Yay, 100% renewable energy." But we got we've got to get over this. I we've really got to get over this on the left. This policy literalism. This idea that like. We're only like we only have a defensible position if the average Democrat on the street can tell you sort of responsibly what level (laughs) of renewables are, you know, realistic by 2030. Like no one knows anything. All we need is um, a a, a vision, a vision that is generally pointed in the right direction. And otherwise, experts are going to figure out the details and you're going to set market conditions and the market is going to respond and come up with these things. But like we don't need to be like, you know, like look at politics. Just look at it right now. Like who why do we think we need to be sort of empirically responsible about what we're projecting for mid-century? Like no one knows anything and and like the details and the facts are just not a big part of debate right now. All we need is to sort of swing the ship in the right general direction, I think. So like somehow we've got to come to an accommodation between our, our, our political people and our vision people and our sort of inspirers and organizers and our wonks. Like we've got to get those people on the same page so we can quit fighting this utterly pointless fight. Well, I'm totally with you. Like Democrats are notorious about like bargaining against themselves yes. by getting too nuanced and too complicated. So the Republicans have been doing really well with very clear messages, build a wall. You know, yep. there are very, very clear messages that they have and the Democrats need to do the same thing. And I agree. We do not want to overanalyze, you know, Hey, let's get rid of, all carbon emissions, like whatever the big thing is, you know, people should be able to wrap themselves around it and not worry about what the analysts say. So, David, I'm curious what you think the value is in going after the Republicans that are pro-climate uh, legislation and and really getting them to focus on a level playing field, um, which means, you know, sort of de-escalating oil and gas subsidies in the same timeline as renewable energy subsidies? Well, I mean, it depends on what you mean by go after. I I have sent snarky tweets their way, but I doubt it has materially affected their political uh, 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 chances. I I just think, I mean, 
this is possibly uh, 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 personal and out of peak and not all that uh, responsible on a big picture messaging basis, but but my entire career, has, I have seen wan and sort of symbolic and sort of pathetic gestures from the right greeted with such unseemly enthusiasm by everybody else as the harbinger of a turning point in the Republican Party. This is how it begins. Like, of course, it's small now. Of course, it's not much. But we need to encourage these shoots and water them so that they can grow into something. But here I am, 15 years into, you know, closely watching this stuff, and the shoots never grow. They never get any bigger. Bob Inglis is still just Bob Inglis. You know what I mean? Like, like, uh, so I'm so sick of the kind of uh, hysteria and the sort of that follows any, you know, the bar is so low for them. I would just like to raise the bar just a smidge, just to like, you know, if the bar is, if we can't expect someone in the House Climate Solutions Caucus to vote against a resolution condemning uh, uh, carbon taxes, then what? Then there is no bar. The bars on the ground, like it, we can't treat them like toddlers forever. Catherine, what do you think about David's characterization? Which I do think is fair, uh, but at the same time, you know, your job is to rally support for pieces of legislation and issues and get Republican support. Yeah. How do you square those two things? Yeah, I think. The Republican Party right now, except for a few outliers, is not pro-climate change action at all, period. And I don't think there's like a huge spectrum at all. I just think that they're all there. And so I never, ever approach them on climate. It just doesn't – I won't do that. Now, I will approach them – on issues and on policies that could get us to the same end goal and have a positive impact on climate mitigation without using those words. And even talking to Democratic leadership, and I'll say things like, oh, hey, so if you guys take over the House, are you going to do a carbon tax? (laughs) And they look at me like I've lost my mind and say, no, we're not going to do that, which I knew the answer to that anyway. And I've believed that for a long time that it's not going to happen anytime soon. They say no, but because we have people that are going to have been elected and are expected to take take something home to the people that elected them, let's figure out what we can do together. So maybe that's infrastructure. And maybe when you talk about infrastructure, you're talking about clean energy as part of that. So you may get to the same end goal and use different words and different tactics. And I think that's that's kind of the way you have to do it for now. Look, can I jump in on that though? Because this, to me, I you know the the kind of the political uh, dysfunctions of the Democrats are an, an enduring obsession of mine, and I feel like there are are two roles that we often conflate in the Democratic Party. On the one hand, we want people like Catherine behind the scenes talking to these legislators in the language that will not. Uh, trigger them, <laughs> uh, you, you know, a, 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 and getting incremental votes on, you know, these sort of marginal bills, maybe about adaptation, maybe about something that's not directly about climate. That's all fine, but but somehow the whole Democratic Party adopts that attitude. Like we can't panic Republicans. We've got to tone down our rhetoric. We've got to find these, you know, sort of middle ground where we don't mention climate and we're working around the edges. Like where are the people in the Democratic Party who are taking the build the wall approach? (laughs) You know what I mean? Who are just saying, 
no, we want action that's commensurate with the problem. No, we're not going to tone down our talk about climate. We're on the one hand saying it's an existential threat to our very species. And then on the other hand saying it's not worth upsetting the other political party about those two messages do are, are not commensurate. Like what I feel like we should have learned from Republicans over the past several decades that while, you know, sort of stark, unapologetic statements of ambition and principle may not sort of part the waters and get things done immediately. If you say what you really believe and act passionately that you believe it, that alone affects people over the long term. And who in the Democratic, everybody's the deal maker on the Democratic side. Everybody's the compromiser. Who is the, who's making these you know, inspirational statements of ambition. Where is our build the wall? Well, I think you're going to find people who are getting elected this in this cycle on both sides are going to be those people. They're going to be the ones that inspire. And so I think that portends potentially a change in leadership um, to be a little more outspoken on aspirational goals. I still think, though, when you get in the back room and you have to cut deals, you're going to end up doing an infrastructure bill. I will reiterate the fact that I don't think a climate bill makes any sense at the federal level. The best way to do climate is to add 10 words to every other bill that adds climate money to stuff. Federal Highway Transportation Bill, add some money. U.S. Agriculture Bill, add some money. Like, I don't care what it is, add some money for climate. Like, I don't think a real climate bill has a shot whether the Democrats have 60 votes in the Senate or not. All right, so let's wrap up. One last question. David, what is one story that you're covering, a theme that you're covering that makes you feel positive about the future? Uh, Well, I'll set you guys up (laughs) with this answer. Uh, Electric buses are are a a source of uh, unending uh, pleasure for me because electric buses are, to me, the kind of story that we're going to see more and more of, which is finally clean technology uh, getting to the price point and the, and the sort of technological development point where they can start aiming at niches where they can do intense amounts of good. Like we're so used to sort of these big, broad reports about the uh, the economy overall and the carbon intensity of the economy overall. But we sort of forget that there are niche, there are niches all over the place where the, the, the cost benefit analysis is way better than it is if you just take a broad national view. And, and buses are one of those spots, like getting diesel buses off the streets hits checks so many boxes uh, not just um not just clean energy boxes not just reducing fuel use and reducing carbon emissions but reducing particulate emissions uh, making cities more pleasant making city streets quieter and more pleasant improving the sort of uh, uh health of the most vulnerable populations in cities on and on and on and down the line and it's and it's an area where there where you almost completely um, bypass partisanship one of the very you know those are harder and harder to find but it's just such a common sense thing something that everyone wants that everyone likes that everyone gets excited about and that cities can do on their own without a bunch of argument at the national level without sort of national polarized politics interfering so it just like it's the perfect sweet spot and i think 
we're going to see lots more of those, you know, not big national movements or big national bills or big national anything, but these sort of technological niches where clean energy just sits and fits perfectly. And that those kind of things are going to start changing the way people think about clean energy, I think, or clean technology. That does set us up well for the next segment. David Roberts is a staff writer at Vox. He is a very prolific writer. He's been covering this stuff for 15 years. And I think I speak for everyone in this industry when we say we eagerly await your new columns. You have a really fantastic voice. And thank you so much for for joining us. Thanks, y'all. It was fun. This podcast is brought to you by Mission Solar Energy. It is ramping up, fulfilling customer demands for American-made solar modules. It's a proud supporter of America's solar industry. It supports hundreds of jobs, engineering jobs, office jobs, manufacturing jobs, and directly contributes to America's burgeoning clean energy economy. So when you buy Mission Solar modules, you know you're directly supporting American jobs. And you're directly supporting American innovation, too. Mission Solar has best-in-class research facilities, and its laboratory is always working to innovate and produce the best quality modules possible. And it's centrally located, too, so it makes it easier to fulfill the needs of domestic developers. Mission Solar is soon going to be introducing a higher output module for the U.S. market in Q3 or Q4 2018. So if you want to learn more about that module and its range of other products, go to missionsolar.com products. That's missionsolar.com slash products. Mission Solar, American-made solar modules. Let's spend the remainder of the show talking about electric buses, the hopeful topic that keeps uh, David believing that we're going to find interesting solutions. So electric buses are getting a lot of play these days. China's investing crazy amounts of money into the tech. Transit agencies here in the U.S. are much more interested in electrifying. A new study out this week from the Union of Concerned Scientists shows that electric buses are cleaner than the competition in every state. There's also been some mixed news, too. So BYD, the Chinese manufacturer, has some buses in Los Angeles that have had some performance problems, and we'll talk about those. Um, So speaking of BYD, Generate Capital Jigger established a $200 million leasing fund for electric buses. I want to talk about that. Um, What is this leasing lease offering all about? Well, as you know, there's a lot of changes afoot, right? For a long time, the way that transit buses were purchased around the country uh, actually, may, many people may not know this, um, was they just got money from the federal government. So they would apply for grant funding from the Federal Highway Trust Fund. They would then know two years later whether they got that money. And then once they got that money, then they did a, a request for proposals locally to get um, to procure the buses, right? So it could be like a four or five year process. This is the process that Proterra went through to get most of their um, electric bus orders it was through the last round of Federal Highway Trust Fund money, you know, three years ago. Um, whereas I think that where the Trump administration is leading everybody through is just everyone who applies gets the same amount of money. So they're just taking a fixed amount of dollars and giving everyone one-twelfth of the amount of money that they need to buy the buses. So you can imagine they're all trying to figure out where else to get the 11, the 11 twelfths that they still have left to purchase. And that's where the leasing program comes in, right? When you think about all of the operating cost savings that electric buses provide, whether it's fuel savings, bigger is maintenance savings, actually. And then even bigger than that, you know, Chicago estimates that each bus saves roughly $45,000 a year in healthcare costs. Um, You end up with 
really the ability to take those operating cost savings and paying the lease payment. Yeah, so you talked to Julia Piper, who wrote a great story on this lease program, and you mentioned that leasing companies don't assign residual value to electric cars and buses. You hinted at that. What does that mean exactly, and how does that translate to the way you've structured the leases? So like many things that we do at Generate Capital, I have to quickly get up to speed on new sectors that I don't know much about. But um, in this case, for car leasing and bus leasing, the leasing companies really make very little money during the length of the lease, right? So they'll charge, let's say, 3.5% or 4.5% interest during the length of the lease, but then they have this 20% residual value, and the game is they all compete on figuring out how to sell those buses for more money than they thought they would be able to get for them at the end of the lease, right? So for a lot of these leasing companies, they're looking at electric buses and saying, I don't know what's going to happen at the end of seven years or 10 years at the end of this lease. Am I going to take a bath on this? Am I going to make money on this? What's going to happen to the battery? The battery is going to be halfway through its life because the battery life is only seven years. And so in year seven on a 10 year lease, you're going to get a new battery installed. And what's the length of time that's left on that battery? So in their confusion, they're just saying no. They're just saying to their customers, we're not going to support you on this. And you think you can overcome that problem? Are you are you convinced? Yeah, well, we're not first of all, we're not afraid, right? Cuz from our perspective, the bus is the bus and, you know, swapping out the battery is not a big deal. And for us, if we have to take the battery and put it into our utility battery business, we're not against that, right? So second life batteries don't don't bother us. I mean, they still have a huge amount of cycles left in them to provide grid storage. You can imagine Wells Fargo leasing though just doesn't get that and they don't want to deal with you know, figuring out what to do with the batteries. Catherine, do you share the same sense of optimism as uh, Jigger and David about electric buses? Yeah, absolutely. Just the, the Bloomberg New Energy Finance report says that by 2030, there will be 28% of our cars will be EVs, but 84% of our buses will be electric buses. And I've been out to visit Proterra a couple times that's located out in Silicon Valley. And just talking to them and knowing because I'm a bus rider, I ride the bus every single day to and from work, that buses are huge investments and they're so dirty and uncomfortable when when they're diesel. And when you have to make a new investment, it's so much cheaper to get now an electric bus that will, for the life of the bus, be much quieter, much cleaner. And in the end, of course, the fuel costs will make it completely aligned with any cost that you'd spend on a diesel bus. So it makes total sense for cities to invest in electric buses. It would also make sense for like the National Park Service or tourism bureaus to invest in buses. I mean, there are just so many places where we use buses that impact our daily lives. And uh, it seems like it's a great investment. So um, the, the push toward cleaner buses has generally headed in the direction of natural gas powered buses, but electrification is starting to become more popular. And the Union of Concerned Scientists actually compared diesel buses, natural gas buses, and electric buses. And this study showed um, when considering extraction of fossil fuels, refining, um, the delivery of fuels, actual tailpipe emissions, the energy mix of the grid, that electric buses are actually cleaner than the alternatives in every single state. What did you guys make of those findings? Surprising at all? Well, I mean, I worked in the Clean Cities program back in the 90s, and I think that the study that UCS did back then 
confirm that, right? So I don't think it was that the, the that the 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 results have changed. I think we've known a lot of this stuff for 20 years. I think what's changed is that because of the growth of electric vehicles um, globally, uh, you're in a situation where where battery prices are way way lower today than they were 20 years ago, and so the economics of the bus back then was sort of like a 19 year payback. Today it's probably closer to like a seven year payback. Yeah, Oslo just ordered 42 electric buses for a population of 11.9 million. They're going 100% electric bus. And I would imagine many more cities will follow. Okay, so we do need to talk about the BYD challenges in LA. The buses were getting uh, far lower mileage on a charge than BYD said they would. They were they were having performance issues. How did you look at those performance issues, Jigger, and... and are you confident they can be overcome? What kind of due diligence are you doing on a company like BYD that has had some hiccups? Yeah, no, it's a good question. And there's certainly some bellyache in Albuquerque as well and a few other places. And, you know, I think that when we look at BYD, first, I think it's important to note that BYD is the single largest, most valuable electric company in the world, right? They've got a market cap of like $80 billion and 30% of all of their Class B stock is owned by Warren Buffett. So they're not a a fly-by-night company. Of the 30,000-plus electric buses around the world, uh, BYD has made over 80% of them. Um, And so, you know, including 17,000 buses in Shenzhen in China. So, So their experience base is pretty large. I think the challenge they have is scaling up a factory in Lancaster, California, which I think has taken them a lot longer and a lot harder than they thought it would be. And so that's, I think, where a lot of the diligence came from. So mostly what we found was that they just had some quality control problems, which they're now, you know, bringing in their experts from China and they're fixing that plant. But um, but I don't think these are, you know, anything structurally wrong with the technology itself. Let's give our listeners a free electron now. Catherine, what is yours this week? Yeah. So I just got done reading Bad Blood about Theranos, and uh, I needed to have some good news to kind of be a respite from that, which, by the way, is a really, really good book. Um, And noted that Bloom Energy, with whom I've worked and I've visited a few times out in Sunnyvale and also their plant in Newark, Delaware, um, they just went public yesterday. They had their initial public offering. Their shares jumped 67% from $15 to $25. There's still about $2.3 billion in the hole, um, and they have not been profitable yet, but they are targeting data centers, hospitals. They have agreements with Walmart and FedEx and AT&T and are in a bunch of different countries. Um, and uh, it seems like their fuel cells, uh, you know, hopefully this public offering will enable them to to get cash positive and that they'll be able to deploy, you know, in concert with a lot of other clean energy technologies. Well, this tees up a conversation about Bloom that I think we need to revisit. So let's bookmark this one. And I think we'll talk about Bloom more in a future episode. Jigger, what is your free electron? So this week, mine is a little bit on log rolling where um, uh, STEM batteries who, you know, we've been banking for a long time, uh, announced a $200 million raise with Ontario teachers. And it really culminates in four years of effort that, you know, we've made at Generate Capital with STEM. Um, And I just want to use it as an example for, you know, what it takes to actually get these companies eligible for, um, for institutional capital. You know, there's just a tremendous amount of work that we had to do around 
um, due diligence on the equipment and figuring out what the lifespan would be and what the right parameters would be around replacement ratios for the batteries over time and warranty claims and, you know, figuring out whether they could go after low credit deals because you can pretty easily go and pick up the battery and move it elsewhere, right? And all of that thinking and thought process was used by Ontario teachers and others to actually make their decision, which, you know, we're really quite proud of is, you know, really represents them being able to reach that level of bankability. But um, it's just one of those things where um, I think people just sort of forget how hard it is to um, to help a lot of these new approaches and technologies, uh, configurations to become bankable. You guys are moving a lot of money these days. So a uh, little log rolling on, on the GTM side. We're moving podcasts these days. I just wanted to give a shout out to the Political Climate Podcast. Um, we they're like eight or nine episodes deep now and you should go over and subscribe to julia piper's podcast uh if you want more summer listening so we've got this podcast which we bring you every single week we got political climate and we got the interchange three very different shows so i think you'll find even if there are some issues that are uh discussed on each show we discuss them in very different ways. We tend to take a more business-oriented approach, uh, talking about policy through a business lens. And political climate kind of brings together a Republican, Democrat, and a journalist to talk about politics uh, through a mostly political lens. And uh, then interchanges more like long-form discussions on a variety of topics. So you have got your listening cut out for you this summer, and I hope you can check out that show. With that, we're done. Catherine's off for vacation. I think I can hear her packing the car already. Yeah, loading up the rooftop. <laughs> You're not going to tie the dog to the top of the car like Mitt Romney, right? No, no. She sits in the middle of the back seat, panting. Um, yeah, and I'll only miss, I'll miss one uh, episode on each end of it, but then you will have me taping from my side porch in the mountains for two of the weeks. Jigger, are you going anywhere or are you sticking with me? I'm sticking with you. Always by your side. Indeed. Well, I'll be back with Jigger. Uh, we'll hear Catherine a couple times in August, but bid her adieu while she enjoys her vacation. And uh, you all enjoy the rest of your summer. Again, keep listening to this podcast and give us a rating review on Apple Podcasts. Check us out on Google, Stitcher, anywhere you get your podcasts. And uh, pass a link to your friends and colleagues, too, if you think they'd like this show. With Jigger, Shaw, and Katherine Hamilton, I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Energy Gang, a production of GreenTechMedia.com. We'll catch you all next time. <laughs>